Let's be finding in our Bibles 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you would, please. Thank you, Ryan and band. Thank all of you. You do and have been a wonderful choir this morning. Easter is about life. We come to the spring season and the buds come out of the plants and so much speaks to us about life. It is about life because our Savior is about life. Yet it becomes my duty this morning to remind us, and I know you know this, and maybe not want to think about it on Easter Sunday, but Easter is also about death. Jesus died. And it is an absolute fact of earthly existence that people die. I am going to die. It's going to happen. Unless the Lord comes, I'm going to die. And my friends, so are you. With every second, every tick on the clock, somewhere in the world, someplace, dies. Loved ones who are sitting in the service next week are gone. And strangely enough, they often die in very unique ways. Just over the past week, as I recall a few instances that captured the national attention, a nine-year-old girl dies in the southeast, goes to school, has a brief little skirmish with another girl in school, It was shrouded in secrecy, and she died, died at school from a fight. Later found out she had medical problems, but she, nine years old, a 21-year-old university student was climbing a clock tower for fun back on the East Coast and fell and died. A couple visiting Grand Canyon decided to take a selfie and got too close to the edge and... uh, tragedy occurred. A newlywed couple in Greece uh, visiting from London decided they'd go up on the top of one of the cliffs there in one of their all-terrain vehicles they rented, backed up, got too close to the edge, and they're gone. Some others are even much more strange than that. A man in the Philippines was fishing. He, for some reason, yawned or coughed or whatever, and just at the same time, a freak accident, a fish flew up, went into his mouth, and choked him, and he died. Tragic, sad, crazy, really, even. You'd say, well, um, death is something we have to look about and think about when we come to Easter, and it's true. But the wonderful thing about Easter is that Easter proves that actually someday death will be dead. Now, the first Easter started this, but the last Easter, that coming resurrection, it will finish it. And I, for one, am tired of seeing loved ones taken from our lives. I've grown weary of feeling the heartache of loss again and again and again. And for me, I am more than ready to never again say, we have to watch someone die. The first Easter was at the resurrection of our Savior. The last Easter is at the resurrection of the saved. Between the first Easter and the last Easter, the first Easter, the resurrection of our Savior, the last Easter, the resurrection of the saved, is the power of the resurrection. In your worship folder there, I have a little pastor's blurb, and in it we talk about living in the power of the resurrection. There are many Easter's between the first one and the last one, but both of them this morning remind us that Hallelujah, death is dead. Let's all bow our heads for the prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for this great truth. 
And I pray, Holy Spirit of God, that the great excitement that's in our soul this morning as we reminded itself again of the power of the resurrection would be each of ours. And that, Lord, you would just collect every mind and help us to think deeply. Help us, Lord, to think profoundly. Give us ears to hear, Holy Spirit. And I pray that you'll help us even more so. Give us feet to put into action and hands the words that are spoken. In Christ's name, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, by the way, if you, I know we have maybe sometimes in a service like this, a few extra children or little ones, feel free to slip out if they get a little bored with the message. We have a TV out there, they can, you can watch the services. Verse number 12, let's all read verse 12 together if you would, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 12. It's really not our text verse, but I think it sets up what we're talking about today. All right, it's behind you here, let's read it together. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, the world says that. It's never changed. There's no resurrection of the dead. But this is not talking about the world. Paul here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is speaking to the Corinthian church. And there, speaking to that church, he said, how in the world... Have you bought into this secular idea that there can be no resurrection? There's no such thing as the supernatural. Everything is only natural. Secularism was the religion of the Greeks. Paul called it another place, science falsely so-called. And you know, really the difference between their science and our science is we just uh, look at the same facts, we just look at them differently. And uh, we have the facts, but they come from a presupposition, and we come from the true facts. And you know, 2,000 years sadly hasn't improved. It's gotten to the point in America where pastors today are fearful to affirm Scripture from the pulpit, lest they be labeled by uh, some secular group as a hate group because we somehow believe the Bible. It's a sad thing that we have to actually try to pass legislation (laughs) to protect the rights of Christians and pastors to be able to speak from the pulpit the truth of God. And Paul confronts this very mindset. He said, folks, we've got to understand something that what we are dealing with is not the secularism of the world, but it is true science. It is true. Three major elements of the resurrection tell us this morning how powerful it is to know that what we have, the truth of God's Word. Let's go, first of all, this morning to the unique Savior that we possess, the most remarkable, extraordinary, unequaled person of history, one that actually died and rose again and is still alive, not some one-off, you know, aberration that uh, they uh, were declared dead and then, you know, they wake up in the morgue. I read about those oftentimes from third world countries, you know. Uh, No, we're talking about someone who rose from the dead and is still alive. Look what it says in verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Now, Paul is going to enter into this incredible biblical argument proving that death is dead because of what Christ did. Now, the first fruits. You'd have to have a Jewish mindset to know much about this, or maybe raised in church. The first fruits are described in Leviticus chapter 23. 
They were required before the Passover meal. And before they could harvest the entire harvest, they were required by Scripture to bring in a portion, actually the first tenth. So, you know, much, many times crops would harvest at different, um, you know, type uh, uh, time frames, maybe because of watering, maybe because of soil condition, maybe because they can't put all the seed into the same time, but the crop would harvest at different times. And so they would say this, all right, now when the first part of the harvest comes, I want you to take it, take a portion of it. I know it's seeds you would wish you could use, and you never know if the rest of the crop's going to come in, but I want you to take that first tenth as a symbol of faith, and I want you to come and bring it to the temple, bring it to the tabernacle, lay it at the feet there of the ministers. And then so doing, you would prove that you believe in God, you know He's the one that's going to take care of you. And so this first fruits offering was what they would do. Now, Paul uses this first fruits offering as a symbol that Christianity is unique because of its first fruits. There are, uh, according to the latest uh, now, 4,200 religions in the world and counting. And yet Christianity is the most unique. You'd say, well, I'm sure everybody says that. No, but the truth is we're unique not because of us. Many people say they're unique because of who they are, because of what they become. We're unique because of our Savior. Our Savior is very unique in that He actually died and He rose again. And that can be said of no other religion. The followers certainly, therefore, cannot achieve something if the founder cannot. Now, a Muslim may have its credit. I do not know. Um, Buddhism may have its credits. I really don't know. Uh, I have read uh, much about both of them and many others, but I don't get a lot out of it. But I will say maybe there is some good. But I will tell you there's something unique about the Christian faith because of the first fruits. The first fruits are a sign. The sign that the harvest is right around the corner. That's the resurrection also. The resurrection of Christ was a sign of the coming resurrection of believers. When any Christian for the last 2,000 years since Christ has died, the Bible says they are absent from the body and they are present with the Lord. Or as Philippians 1 and verse 23 says, Paul said, I'd love to stay with you, but he said, I'd rather depart and be with Christ. I want to be with Christ. <laughs> I, he didn't say, I want to just depart and, and, uh, and take solace in the ideas of Christianity. No, I want to, it's a relationship that means something to me, not a religion. I'm going to be with Christ himself. And notice what it says, with them that slept. We read moments ago in verse 22, he's become the first fruits of them that slept. Hallelujah. When we die, our spirit goes straight to be with Jesus but our body is sleeping in the grave. Now, for some, Jesus may come and it only sleeps for a few days or a few weeks, but for others, it may be hundreds of years, but that body is sleeping, awaiting the resurrection of Christ. One person once wrote, for the Christian, death is not a period, but a comma. It's just a comma in the story of life, just sleeping. That's all that sleeping is, just take a little break, wake up, continue on tomorrow, and that's what the resurrection is. Verse 21, for since by man came death, 
by man also came the resurrection of the dead. Now he gives a very important theological principle, and that is this, that one man screwed everything up. Who is that one man? That is Adam. Um, woman, God said to woman, don't eat this. He said to man, don't eat this. Woman said, I'm going to do it anyway. Man watched her do it, and he said, sounds good to me. I'm going to do it too. And so God said, all right, uh, there's going to be a payment because of that. Now, did you know, and I, I don't know if you knew this or not, did you know that Adam was my grandfather? Did you know that? He is my great, great, well, he's, he's my grandfather way back. In fact, uh, one Bible scholar has uh, calculated the, uh, the amount of generations, and they have said from Adam, and we know this very accurately because you can read the Old Testament uh, genealogies and then put the time we're in it today. Do you know that it's been at least 140 generations with a max of being 160 generations? So we'll just take an average, 150 generations. So Adam was my great, 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 great. Let's go back up, put 150 greats in front of that, and that was my grandfather. Adam was my grandfather. Did you know that? And did you know that he was your grandfather too? We are all by one man, and at one point in history, and at one moment, we are all connected. We are in the seed of Adam. And that's what it says in Romans chapter 5, and verse 12, whereas by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Paul said, I know you don't have a problem with understanding that all people are sinners, unless you're one of these uh, liberal kookballs that think that, oh, we're only bad because of our environment. Oh, really? Put people in the best environment and they still mess up. That's just the way it works because we're sinful. You've never one time had to sit down with your child and say, all right, I'm going to give you a lesson on how to lie today and how to steal and how to pout. No, but we have to give many lessons on how to have a good attitude and how to do right and how to be respectful because sin is bound into our very nature because we are connected to our great, 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 150 greats, Adam. The Bible says because of that, that sin and death has come upon all people. It is reported uh, several years ago that four climbers were going up the side of the Matterhorn. The Matterhorn is one of the most amazing mountains in all of Europe, not only because of its height, almost 15,000 uh, feet high, but its um, pyramid shape. And for many years, uh, very few people ever climbed the Matterhorn, especially, I think it is the north side. But there were some climbers, too experienced and too inexperienced, that decided to climb the Matterhorn. First was the number one climber, their best one. The second was inexperienced. The third was one who was also experienced, but not as much as the first. And then finally, a rookie. All four of them went climbing. The way the climbers do it, they uh, rope themselves to each other, and the front, the front uh, will put in the, the different spikes and put the ice pick in, and one by one, they climb up that mountain. Well, sadly, the final, the last one slipped. The fourth climber on the way up, on the way the ascent, slipped. He fell, and when he fell, he couldn't grab anything. And when he did that, the next guy fell after him. That rope pulled him, and he fell. 
And then, unbelievably, the third one who hopefully would be able to keep them, it also grabbed him. And there they were, one man who was holding, he put his ice pick in there, and he, he dug it in there, and he put his feet in there, and he ended up holding all three of them where they were basically dangling off the side of that Matterhorn. Finally, they were able to regain their footing and carry on. That story is a tragic story, but a good story with a great ending. But I will tell you this, that story reminds us of what has happened to us. We, one by one, Adam fell, and then the next generation fell, and the next generation fell. We are all connected to Adam. But thank God there was one man who put his ice pick in that place, and he held on. That one man kept all mankind from going and falling off that precipice, and that man is Jesus Christ. And that's the, the point Paul is making here is that because if one man can cause sin, and if one man can cause death, why can't one man also create life? Look at verse 22. Now he gets very specific. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, nobody that has any sense knows that, <clears throat> doesn't know that people die. We see graves open up all the time. You know, there may be a recession in our economy coming in the future. I don't know. There may be a recession in certain industries, but there is one thing that there'll never be a recession in, and that is death. I'll tell you one thing, if you want a secure job, just get a job at a cemetery, because there's never a recession. It makes no difference to the economy. It makes no difference what's going to happen. Uh, death is something that constantly grabs us. And there's no some, People say, well, you know, uh, it's a funny thing about death. You know, we don't like to think about it. And humans are the only beings on earth that know they're going to die, know what's going to happen, and yet just won't think about it. I don't want to think about it. In fact, just, they're like, they're just tricking themselves. I talk to people all the time, especially older people. I don't know what it is about them. Younger people seem to even have a more clarity that they're going to die someday. The older folks, they just want to talk about it, you know. I, you know. But folks, we are going to die. Others say, well, I just want to die a natural death. Did you know there's no such thing as a natural death? <laughs> we should not have had to die. But because of sin, we all die an unnatural death. We die as a result of sin. Death came upon all men because of Adam. And then he says, even so, in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, I want you to notice the two alls in that verse. Circle them. Highlight them. For as in Adam, all die. Now, that's a universal principle. Everybody is dead spiritually. We have a dead spirit if it wasn't for God seeking us, not one of us would ever want God or go to heaven if it were not for the Holy Spirit drawing us. And thank God He draws every man so that God is just. If a person rejects God, it's not because they haven't had a chance. God draws every man. As in Adam, all die. We all have a sin nature. That's universal. But the next all is selective. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, it's not selective in the fact that some Christians do and some Christians don't. It's just selective in the fact that some are lost and some are saved. But all Christians go to heaven by faith and connection to Jesus Christ. 
Thank God we are connected to Jesus Christ. In Adam, we all die. But in Christ, we are all made alive. And that's the point Paul is making. We have a unique founder. We have a unique Savior. The thing that sets apart Christianity from everything else, he was telling these Christians, he was saying, why are you buying in to this secular concept? Why are you buying into this Greek mind that there's no such thing as a supernatural? We all know that everybody can have a sin nature because of our connection to Adam. Why can't it be true that we have eternal life because of our connection to the last Adam, the second Adam, Jesus Christ? Here he's pointing out that you're going to be more alive than you've ever been. The great old pastor, great evangelist, D.O. Moody, was once, once said, he said, you know, someday you're going to hear the, the news report that Dwight Lyman Moody is dead. But he said, I want you to know don't believe a word of it. Because when my body ceases to my heart stops, I'll be more alive than I've ever been in all my life. And that's what he's saying. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Yeah, you have a, you have a sin nature. And yeah, you need to know that. But thank God because of our connection to a Savior, a unique Savior, we have eternal life. Three elements of the resurrection, a unique Savior. Number two, an unlikely saved. The unlikely saved. You know heaven's going to be a very surprising place. You'd say, why? Because all the people you will see there you never thought would be there. But maybe even more so, all the people who aren't there that you thought would be there. Heaven's a very surprising place. It's a very unlikely group that gets to go. Verse 23, every man in his own order gets to go. Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at His coming. Now, you're going, to have to, you're going to have to think deep with me here, spiritually deep. And I know if you're not used to using some of those old those muscles, it might be a little rusty. But notice what it says. Every man in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, the first Easter, the first real Easter was when Christ came out of the grave. And then notice what it says afterward. He was the first Easter, but then afterward, there are more that are going to rise. Now, afterward, it doesn't give a specific amount of time. And nobody knows the time from the first Easter to the last Easter. Nobody. Now, you might get on TV, you might watch on TV or listening to some podcast, and somebody's got dialed in to 1984 or 2011 or who knows the next time. But I will tell you, there is no specific time. God just simply says afterward. At a later time, there's a coming. And notice what it says, afterward they that are Christ at His coming. The Greek word coming there is parousia. It means appearing. It means a presence. So here's what it means. At His presence, when He comes again, when Jesus comes, then the resurrection, the last Easter begins. Now His resurrection or His coming actually is in two parts. We know the first part of it is the rapture. That's at the beginning of the tribulation period. And then he finishes it seven years later at the end of the tribulation period. That's the actual second coming. And so how's that going to happen? Well, notice what it says, every man in his own order. You'd say every man in his own order. What does that mean? Does that mean all the pastors go first or, you know, then uh, everybody, the deacons come second, you know? It, no, it doesn't mean that. First, 
Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, reminds us that those that are dead in Christ go first. They get a six-foot head start for those that are in the rapture. But notice what it says, the Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of an archangel, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. There's an order. God is an orderly God. He does things decently in order, and even the resurrection is going to be in order. The resurrection of Christ, then the resurrection of the church, and then the resurrection of that tribulation chorus. Christ, the church, and then that chorus of saints that get saved during the tribulation period. So, the first Easter happened about 2,000 years ago. The second Easter is going to happen at the beginning of the tribulation period, and that's when the church goes. Then the third Easter, the last Easter, is going to be when He comes at the end of the tribulation period. And all the people who got saved and born again during the tribulation period, they are going to be with Him. And that's the order. The word order is an interesting word there in the Greek. It's the word tagma. It is a military term, and it means connected in line. It is, uh, you see the beginning of this military line, you see the end of it. They're all connected. They don't stray. They're connected. They're a long line. That's what he's saying here. We're all in order. We're connected. And when the head goes, the body's going to follow. I will tell you, every place my head goes, my body follows. Now, sometimes my body is going first and my head's still going, you know, I wake up in the morning. And uh, I, uh, I don't know what happened this morning. I walked into the bathroom there, and I started sliding on that floor. I was like flying around like that. And I was thinking, what in the world is on the floor? And there was nothing on the floor. Just, I just tripped or something. And, uh, but I was really irritated. I don't know what I was irritated. But I was just irritated. Why am, I, why am I skiing around this morning? Because my head wasn't awake yet, but my body was moving. But I will tell you this much, folks. When the head goes to heaven, the Bible says the body is going to follow. We're in the same togma. We're in the same line. We're in the same military line. The unique Savior, the unlikely saved, all in order. And then finally, the ultimate salvation. The final impact of the resurrection, salvation. Where the Savior takes the most unlikely group in the world, humans, nothing like it in any religion, nothing like it any place where Christ takes this unlikely group and restores everything. You may have heard of paradise lost. Well, this is paradise found. Jesus is going to bring it all back to the beginning. Verse 24. Let's read verse 24 together, if you would, please. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Ready? Begin. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. Then cometh the end. You'd say, oh no, the end of civilization, the end of the world, global warming. Oh, come on. No, that's not what it's talking about. The actual word there is telos. It's a Greek word. It just simply means fulfilled. When a painter would, when a painter would finish his painting, would step back and he would say, telos, or to telestai, which means finished. Everything is culminated or fulfilled. It is perfect. The end just means it's done. It's Jesus has painted this picture, and finally it culminates, the end. Thank God for the end. For verse 25, it says now, for he must reign 
He must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. After the church is raptured, you can go to Revelation chapter 5 and kind of follow this at another point. You can go back and read this or go back and listen to the podcast. But you can go to Revelation chapter 5 and you find that after the rapture, they are looking for someone who can settle everything, for someone who has the legitimate right, the, uh, the, the right by uh, their actions and the right by their lifestyle, someone who has the right to make everything right. And they find one, Christ, who is worthy. And He steps up and He opens up this scroll and He begins to unroll it, one seal after another, seven of them, seven seals where He declares judgment and He takes back the earth. He takes back the earth. And one by one, I tell you one thing, I have no idea why God waits. <laughs> I have no idea why the, the Father allows all the junk that happens in this world. But to God be the glory, He's a sovereign and wise God, and we trust His ways. But I will tell you this, trust me, when Jesus finally comes, and when He unrolls that scroll, there is, there's not going to be one living thing that won't be touched. Every abortion doctor who has murdered in cold blood some little baby and, or some politician who's got behind that and said that's what the right of every person, God is going to come and He is going to set all of that in order and He is going to unroll this scroll and He is going to thrust His sickle into the earth, this wheat that we call people. The Bible says all Kingdoms will be subdued by God. All the, the entertainment media think they're big stuff, you know. They walk around and they have all this entourage. They think they're big stuff. Kings of this world think they're big. Governments think they're big. Financial groups think they're big. And academia thinks they're big. And sports teams think they're big. Everybody thinks they own everything. But I will tell you, Christ is going to come and He is going to reign and He is going to rule and He is going to establish a God-glorifying world. Can you imagine that moment, the end of everything, when truly America is great? And truly, Russia is a great nation. And truly, North Korea is, they're all worshiping God, and they are giving glory to God. The Bible says He puts everything under His feet. And for a thousand glorious, God-honoring years on this earth, in Lodi and in Stockton and around this world, God is going to get glory. His kingdom will be on this earth. Hallelujah. The Bible says that He has brought everything under His feet. What's the picture there? The picture goes back to the Old Testament kings, even back at the time of the Apostle Paul, where kings were often elevated and people, subjects would come in and they would be under His feet. And it was a symbol of subjection. It was a symbol that they were ruling. And here the Bible says, everyone will be under the feet of Jesus Christ. Now today, the government tries to at times, sadly, bring Christians and churches and put them under their feet. 
And sometimes there are different groups that try to put Jesus under their feet. But I will tell you, there's coming a time when Christ will be king and all will be broken and bowed before the great one because the Bible says it has to happen that way. If he's king, he has to have the crown of everything. And for a thousand glorious years on this very earth as we know it, oh, they'll be reconfigured a little bit because of all that catastrophic uh, things that happened during the tribulation when the sky is falling and the places are burning up and all kinds of things happen to the water system and the fish and the animals. I mean, it's going to be a reconfigured earth to a degree, but I mean, it's going to be an amazing place where all of a sudden everybody gives glory to God. And then, sadly, one last throw of the devil. At the end of that thousand years, the devil is going to be loosed and he's going to go out to deceive And even in this God-glorifying world, he's going to be able to deceive some who only from the outside put Jesus as their Savior, but their inside had never truly accepted Christ. It was only a head knowledge. And then finally, Jesus at that last Easter, we'll put it all down, verse 26, and the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And last of all, he destroys death itself. Now, he's already won the victory over death, but the fear of death is still here. Many people fear death. In fact, when we fear death so much, we make some crazy decisions. Now, I can tell you this morning, I am not afraid of death. Now, I may be afraid of the process. (laughs) I'm not looking forward to, you know, some of the things that may happen, but I'll tell you one thing, I'm not afraid of my life being gone and being with Jesus Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 says this, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. And I will tell you, the devil has people so afraid of death. People just are crazy in this world. They will do anything to avoid death. And I don't believe we ought to be jumping in front of bullets, but friends, I mean, the, the craziness of this world is to avoid death at any cost. No. Verse 15, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. It is a bondage to fear death. Oh, I don't want to think about death. I don't want to. Jesus conquered that fear. But thank God, he not only conquered it, ultimately, death itself will be gone. That's why it says in Revelation 21, there'll be no more crying. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more sorrow, and there'll be no more death. Jesus is Lord of lords and King of kings, as we read here and we sang here a few moments ago. And in holy justice, all the lost will be cast into a lake which burns with fire and brimstone, and all the saved will go to heaven. That's his present to the Father. That's his present to the Father. He says he presents it to the Father. I've done what you asked me to do. I have saved mankind. And that's why it says in verse 55 of this same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 55, oh, death, in a very poetic way, speaking to death as though it were personified, oh, death. You can see this is the language of the Holy Spirit. Oh, death, where is thy sting? And O grave, where is thy victory? Never again will we have to say goodbye to a beloved parent. Never again will you have to drive away from a cemetery with a precious empty seat in your car. Never again will you have to sit at church alone because your loved one is gone. 
You'll never again have to wonder if you could just call someone you love a good Christian that they could pray for you because death is now gone. It is done. It is forever vanished. Death is gone. Hallelujah. Death is dead. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Death is gone. There was a mother with two children that was in a park. They were having a wonderful time. And to one of those nasty little bees came along. The little bee lighted upon the little brother and stung him. He began to cry out in pain like any child would, and that arm began to swell. And that bee was buzzing around, and the little sister was petrified. And the mother looked at the little girl and said, Now, wait a second, honey, wait a second. Look, look. Look at this bee. And the bee landed there. She said, Look. Look at your brother's arm. The stinger is still in the arm. And did you know that a bee can only sting once? And if he leaves his stinger, then that bee cannot sting you. That bee has stung your brother, and the sting is in your brother. And I will say this this morning. You know, that bee of this world and devil, they and the world itself tries to alarm us and tries to frighten us and tries to get us to a point where we're so afraid of death. And yet our elder brother, he has taken the sting of death for us. He has taken that and given us victory. Jesus has defeated death. And I will say here this morning, friend, if you are following Satan, you are following a loser and the consequences are dire. If you are following Jesus, you are following a winner. He is a victor, and that's what God is saying here. He has given us the victory through Jesus Christ. Some people, like myself, are excited about last Sunday's victory by Tiger Woods. Say, man, with the greatest comeback in all of sports history. It may be, I don't know. But I will tell you one thing, it pales in comparison to the comeback of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You talk about a comeback. He was in the grave, but he came back. He defeated death itself. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.